Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is David Esau. This is the C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life. As I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. Always playing the finest in indie pop. This week's special guest is going to be Helen McCookery Book, because I spoke to her a few months ago to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that sort of groovy stuff. So I've got that interview that I broke up into three or four sections or segments just for your excitement. But to get the party rolling, I think we should play your favourite and mine. This is a track by Helen titled Rainbow of the Colour Green. Take it away. This rainbow of the colour green will fade my fear away. I know what never could have been the mistakes of yesterday. The morning mists of centuries will cool my burning heart. Then clear to show the road ahead, that's where I'm bound to start.
Delightful. That was Helen McCookery book with a track titled Rainbow of the Colour Green. Hello, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact us, we always love your messages. You can via Facebook, Twitter, just go to at C86. And um, it's always nice to hear from you. And um, also, just doing the admin part of the show here, if you want to hear any of the archive, and I've been doing the show for two years and always with a special guest, so there is a lot of special guests if there's any bands you ever wanted to hear, um, you can find them. I put them out on um, Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud and Podbean. Just go to at C86show and they will be there. But anyway, like like I said, this week's special guest is going to be Helen McCookery book. Um, so I brought that interview or got that interview that I've broke up into three or four sections just for your excitement. But before any chat, I think we'll play another track. This is titled 21st Century Blues by Helen. If you like Helen McCookery book, fill your boots. This show is solid gold, easy action. Take it away, Helen. Without a trace Stealing 
That was Helen McCookery book with a track titled 21st Century Blues. This is David Eastall. This is The C86 Show and this is a Helen McCookery book special. And this is going to be the first part of our interview. And this is where I began by asking her about those early years, influences and the beginning of her musical career. And this was her answer. Helen, well, take it I away. Had a very, um, I was at art college in Brighton in the late 1970s and... Um, there was a, I was living in a squat and there was a group of people who used to play, um, they were a punk band. Punk had sort of arrived in Brighton. It was a bit, it was about a year later than it did in London. And they used to rehearse in the basement of our squat and they were absolutely deafening and it was 24-7. And um, in the end, we decided to get them a gig to get them out of the house. And um, they, they didn't, they bottled out a bit. So me and my boyfriend and a couple of other friends formed a band and um, within three days, we, we bought lots of copies of um, newspapers like The Sun and, and The Mirror. And we wrote some songs and we did their gig. And we ended up um, having a band that sort of lasted. We never made any records, but the band lasted for about maybe a year. And it mutated sort of in, in about 1978, 1979. It mutated into a much bigger band. Um, and then sort of everything finished. And about 1978, I was really... I thought that was it, you know, I'd had my moment. And then um, one of the people from the bigger band, the guitarist, who was quite young, I was about, I was probably about 21 or something. And he, he came round and he said, oh, will you be in a band with me? And I was really shocked. I'd been playing back, uh, bass in this other band and had just started writing songs. And I was really shocked that anybody wanted to be in a band with me. But he'd already written some music to a poem I'd written when I was at art college called Food, which was... Um, supposedly sung by a band called Kenwood and the Chefs, and I'd done a book of illustrations that went with it. And he said, oh, this is a song I've written. And um, he, well, he, the music I've written to your song. And um, he he played it to me. And I was so shocked. I just said, oh, all right then. I said, what should we call ourselves? And he said, well, the chefs, you know, because <laughs> the, the, this illustration was a, a dancing chef. And there was this, there was this, food mixer called the Kenwood Chef so that's my joke so we wrote a few songs and we we were a three-piece and we played around Brighton um and gradually became a four-piece and a local record label called Atrix um invited us to first of all to um contribute a couple of tracks to um, one of their albums they used to bring out annual albums and we were on Voltage 79 and that track called Food was on that alongside another track called You Get Everywhere and then after that, they invited us to um, to make an EP. So we put four songs on an EP, um, and I designed the cover, and a friend of mine called Claire took the picture. And that was that was really exciting because that was just us. You know, that felt really special. And um, we started getting a bit of airplay. We did another um, we did another single with Atrix, a song called Twenty Four Hours, which John Peel really liked, and he played that loads. Um, we met him because we'd had our photographs taken by a food photographer who was trying to turn into a rock photographer. And um, we, ate, we ate the food he'd been photographing and then he took some pictures of us. And we were in the West End and me and our manager said, oh, let's go and let's go and take this single 24 hours to John Peel and see if he'll play it. Um, and we went and stood outside the BBC at quarter to ten and sure enough, he turned up and... Um, we said, you know, we're the chefs and here's our new single. And he said, oh, come up to the studio. Because <laughs> um, I've been writing to him for about a year. Um, I was working in a shop in Brighton 
And I never thought he read my letters, so I decided to stop. And then one day he said, oh, this woman called Helen the Cookery Book has stopped writing letters to me. I thought, he must be reading them. <laughs> so he knew who I was. And, um, yeah, he invited us up to the studio, and I was so embarrassed. He put the single straight on, and I was so embarrassed. I was talking all the way through it. He's going, shh, shh, shh. No, I like this. I like this. And um, he played it loads. And... Um, we ended up with, we did quite a lot of playing around the place. We ended up with some agents. We played all over the UK um, and then just kind of burned out, I suppose. And I had a year of not feeling very well. And um, But writing some kind of cowboyish songs, I suppose. And um, John Walters, John Peel's um, producer, phoned me up and said, oh, have you got any new songs? He knew that the, the chefs had split up and he said, have you got any new songs? And I said, well, no, I haven't. Can you phone back in a year? And all my friends were saying, that's really stupid. You should have just said yes and gone and recorded anything. But I literally was at such a low ebb, I couldn't manage it. But he did actually phone back in a year. And by that time, I had Helen and the Horns on the go. And um, that was a, a band. It was supposed to have Leicester Square from the monochrome set playing guitar and a, a drummer called Mike, who was a friend of mine on drums. And I was supposed to be playing bass. But... Um, I couldn't afford to get the drum kit around town because I was on the dome. I couldn't afford to get the drum kit around town in a taxi. So I said, I'll just rehearse the horn section and then you can join us later. And um, we started getting loads of gigs just with me on my guitar and a three-piece horn section. So in the end, um, we decided that we just have this band called Helen and the Horns. And John Peel, you know, obviously gave us that first session. We, I think we did about three or four sessions for him with Helen and the Horns. And completely different audience, completely different sound, um, really different experience, you know, because we weren't a rock band. And because we had no drums, it ended up that we could be on the bottom of the bill of practically any band anywhere in the UK. <laughs> so we ended up playing... One of the things we did was play this massive punk gig in, in Warwick, Warwick University, with a thousand people pogoing. And then I think the next week we played at um we played the, the um the ball at the Cafe Royal for the um King's College um graduation, all in their taffeta dresses, waltzing around, you know. So really, really odd experience. Wow, that is that is quite surreal, isn't it, actually? Because what I've noticed with a lot of bands, they, they have that... I mean, obviously, it's a little bit different. Though you were in a band and then you became the lead singer or the lead person of the band, but normally there's a couple of years of being sort of faffing about a bit, sort of wondering whether to be in a band. But mostly it's to do with... One of the key things that I sort of realise is kind of the great unemployment, being un, unemployed and having benefits. And if you're on the enterprise allowance, then, you know, cash back. It, it was the perfect kind of year to to I suppose yes think that you're definitely a musician for a year if you manage to get that thousand pound in the bank account and then it was John Peel he you know he seemed to become this great gatekeeper that I sort of hadn't appreciated at the time but a, a play on John Peel would get that yeah a, a sort of an audience outside one's normal environment because normally one's playing in front of their friends family and anybody else they can emotionally blackmail to see them and then suddenly they could get a gig kind of in Manchester or Norwich or Manchester or or up in Glasgow or Brighton you know because there was often those little indie nights that that started at the beginning of the week they'd have them on sort of probably when uh, art centres couldn't put anything else on on a Monday or Tuesday really so that that created quite a nice scene at that sort of 80s period. Yeah, we were quite lucky, really. I mean, when we 
when we played in Brighton at the end of the 1970s and the very beginning of the 1980s, when I was in the Chefs, there was this massive music scene in Brighton that everybody just used to go out every night. You know, it was the, the audience was just there. And then when we moved up to London, we got a residency at the Moonlight Club, which was very similar. The Moonlight Club was in West Hampstead and it had been part of Decca Records, I think. Um, and that was really, really similar that they had so many different bands on. They had the Dolly Mixture on there. They had um, Southern Death Cult. They had early incarnations of um, what was that band that had Delana Curry in it? The Thompson Twins. So it was lots and lots of bands playing there and audiences just used to go. Um, it wasn't like you didn't, it didn't feel as though you had to do a massive amount of marketing or anything like that. It kind of seemed as though lots of the venues had their own crowds who just came and accepted anything. And I think that was one of the really nice things about the very <clears throat> early 1980s was that there were so many different types of uh, music. I mean, one of my favourite bands was a band called The Happy End, which was a big band of amateur musicians. Absolutely terrific. And their lead singer was Sarah Jane Morris, who went on to do stuff with Jimmy Somerville and have hits, you know, and they were absolutely incredible. Was the, there were probably about 20 of them. They all used to wear red and black and they just had all these brass. They were such a spectacle, lots of brass instruments, you know, people like Carmel, who had a very unusual, um, you know, she had a drum kit and double bass in her voice, which was just beautiful. And you would go out to these clubs and there'll be so many different combinations of musicians and this really curious audience that just really seemed as though they were up for anything that people gave them, you know. Um, and doing Helen and the Horns in an environment like that, it was really kind of accepting. Which is a good thing. Anyway, that is the first part of my interview with Helen McCookery book. There is more of that to come. But I thought we should break it up with a bit more music from Helen. This is going to be so long, Elon. We're building a big rocket with space for all our shoes With Bitcoin in our pockets There's nothing left to lose We're training up the robots To fight the final war With obsolescent humans that we don't need anymore Now we've used up the planet We'll throw it in the bin Cause there's no future in it So let's begin again We'll fly the flag of fortune Cause only perfect people Should circle around the sun One
game helen mccookery book with a track titled so long elon hello this is david Eastall, the c86 show i know i keep repeating that just in case you're curious anyway this is going to be the second part of my interview with helen um when i've been babbling on about the 80s and the excitement of that period the yes the thatcher years scargill red wedge all that kind of groovy stuff it was all very swp TVP, all that sort of stuff. And I was just curious to find out if this had all been filtering into the work of Helen. And this was her answer. Helen, take it away. It, funnily enough, when I was in the chefs, I actually had jobs. I worked in a shop and I worked in the printers. It was very hard to get jobs, but um, I, I did I did have jobs. It, when I came to London, it was, it was really different and much harder, not really harder to find work. You could, you could find work, but not, not good work, you know. And um, we were all living like outlaws, I suppose. We're living in very cheap housing. And so it's called guardian housing these days, where you move into a house temporarily just to look after it so it doesn't fall down. And, you, you know, you have minimal heating, minimal, you know, very, very minimal um, anything, no carpets. Um, you're lucky if you have a bath and hot water, that kind of thing. And quite brutal way of living, I suppose. And um, sharing a lot of things, I think, you know, um, sharing food very irritating I used to get back from gigs because we couldn't afford to stay in hotels because we just didn't make enough money so often we used to drive back overnight and I'd get back and I'd think oh thank god I've got some cheese in the fridge and I'd open the fr fridge and there would be a note there saying hi Helen um sorry I got hungry and ate your cheese <laughs> you know <laughs> stuff like that you know I mean it, it, I think it's possible to look back with really rosy tinted 
glasses on something that was actually quite harsh at times, you know. And it's, um, I think the main thing was that everybody felt as though they were outlaws. So you just had to kind of make up your way of life. And um, you lived on your wits, you know, you live by your imagination. What can you do? How can you, how can you get to this place in the middle of the night? I always remember being stranded with no night buses in the middle of nowhere on freezing cold nights with my guitar, you know, it's kind of, how, how on earth am I going to get home? It's absolutely impossible. And then somehow you manage to do it, you know, and uh, yeah, and just very, you know, everybody sharing houses with people who are often into completely different sorts of music. So, you know, I shared a house with people who were into test department and um, people who were into, oh, just people who were into reggae, um, people who are into shriek back, just really mixed um, sorts of music. So quite often you'd go out with your friends to see their mates band, and that way you'd kind of, you'd just get exposed to all kinds of things. Yeah, very 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 culturally rich, I suppose. Yes. Well, I can remember the shared housing things. Well, there was always a sink full of washing up, and then there was no food anywhere, and and nobody ever would take off their boots or coat because it was always too cold. So you'd just be sitting there in these kind of rather, you know, all these kind of. I suppose the army and navy was our sort of go-to place for buying clothes. So you'd everybody had big boots and lots of socks because it was just always freezing. You could see your breath in the living room for sort of three months of the year because you know you just didn't put heat in on I, I do remember once getting the gas bill every year when I was living in those conditions and it was like five pound each you know for the quarter because it was like we didn't have it was just and that was just I don't know what that would be for. oh the cooker that was the only thing that would be running was the ring on the cooker for boiling you know the kettle and that was you know it was just it was just a mess it looked a bit like the Withnell and I environment you know that kitchen in that scene of um, you know, if you wanted to have a drink, you'd have to wash up something to um, yes, a mug. It was horrible, actually. <laughs> oh, you, so everybody used to have a cat to keep them warm, and I remember going to this recording session once, and the, the cat had been sleeping on my head, and I hadn't slept all night because the cat was really restless. But it, I didn't move it out of my bed because it was warm, and the, I said to the producer, "Oh, um, I didn't sleep last night because the cat was sleeping on my head." And he said, "You know what? That's what everybody tells me when they come in. Every band, every band who comes in to record tells me that the cat was sleeping on their head." So. Uh, yeah. Yes, exciting days. But it's very 80s. But then what happened with Helen and the Horns? How did that develop? Well, we, 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 it was a great band to be in. I mean, we did so many gigs. Um, and they were, the, the Horns were actually, two of them were, were Imperial College. They were, um, they'd been studying at Imperial, Imperial College and the trombone player still had the key to the jazz room because they'd been in a jazz group together so we used to get free rehearsals we just used to sneak down there and pretend we were pretend we were students at imperial college and um, we used to have a, a a session um trumpet player and i kind of learned how to write horn parts i used to listen to a lot of um i loved louis jordan and i loved um byron lee's all stars who are a kind of blue beat band from jamaica and I just used to listen to them and I used to listen to the way the horns worked and do the arrangements from that. And I also really loved Doris Day. So there was this kind of Western, um, you know, kind of cowboy flavour to a lot of the stuff. And we kind of hit that thing that John Peel called cowpunk, you know, with the Boot Hill foot tappers and um, that, the men they couldn't hang. And so we did quite a lot of those kind of gigs, although we also did a lot of independent, you know, our gigs. We, we sort of did quite a lot of cabaret type gigs we just fitted into so many different um categories and 
we were really, really popular in Scotland. And that was great for me because my mum and dad lived up there. So we used to go and sleep, sleep on the floor. And we played in Dundee, Dunfermline, um, Glasgow, Edinburgh. Um, we used to love playing in Scotland because the Scottish audiences were not kind of fashion based. And after we went out of fashion in London, Scotland still loved us. You know? So we, we loved Scotland back. And um, we released a single on Thin Sliced Records, which was um, my then partner was in a group called King Kurt, who are a psychobilly band. And their label released our first single, which John Peel played. And then um, we signed up to RCA Records, which was a bit of a mistake because I realised how independent minded that, that I am. Um, a lot RCA records had an agenda that just didn't seem to fit in with our thing of doing loads of live gigs. They wanted us to just kind of keep quiet and then pop out a single every so often. And they also kind of foisted producers on us that didn't really know how to produce such a peculiar band. Um, whereas, you know, I and we did, you know, we knew what we wanted to sound like and producers didn't seem to get it. So after about six months, I, <clears throat> I decided that we had to try and get out of the deal. And I just, we did have a manager, but the manager wasn't keen on doing it. So I actually made an appointment with our A&R man. And I just sort of said, look, we're not very happy with you and you're not really doing what we want. And you're very busy with your rhythmics because they just put all of their money into the rhythmics. And I said, please, can we have a release from the contract? And I think he was so surprised he said yes. <laughs> so, um, we ended up, um, I, unbeknownst to me, the guys had saved all the money I paid them because I always paid them session fees because I was the one who was writing the music. Um, and so I got the performing rights money myself and I just thought it's only fair to pay them because they're working really hard, you know, with me and that. And they saved it all up. So we made our own label um, called Rocking Ray Records and we recorded our own album and released it ourselves. And got it distributed by the cartel um nice vinyl album and um then we just had a meeting and said well what do we want to do now do we want to carry on or shall we just sort of say we've had a really good run of things and we'll call it a day and we decided that that's what we're going to do um because we didn't it looked as though the charts were getting really normal again the charts just seemed to be um bands with drums bass guitar and a lead singer and that wasn't us at all and we couldn't really see a place for ourselves there and the other thing that was going along beside that was this very thriving cabaret and comedy scene but that just felt a little bit tame because we've been playing all these rock venues and um, so we kind of shook hands and said goodbye and it, that was a really good thing to do because it does mean that every so often somebody asks me if we can do a Helen and the Horns gig and actually the original players come together and we do it. And we played um, David Gedge's um, The Wedding Present. He has a festival called At the Edge of the Sea. And we played that this year. Um, it just means we can occasionally play together because we, we didn't ever fall out, you know. Yes, this is this is always very good, actually. The the interesting and slightly depressing world that he's been in the band. And, and keeping that dynamic together is always, you know, most people just look back with sort of, I don't know, a mixture, isn't it, really, of, um, oh dear, I wish, wish we could have all sort of coped with those moments better than we did, which is, yes, it's just life, isn't it, and growing up, but it is a bit, um, 
I suppose it's just an emotional roller coaster, sort of not not sometimes not really having an idea of your where one wants to go, and at the same time, sort of not appreciating what one has. So I'm I'm slightly amazed and impressed with certain bands who are slightly unfashionable, but they kept their eye on the picture, I suppose, and kept it together rather than self destructing at the wrong time. So, yes, keeping it keeping that dynamics going. So, did you ever have a a sort of a break from the music world? Well. <clears throat> After Helen Horns, um, I had been playing live for seven years. Um, you know, professionally by the end of it, we were making a living. Um, and I actually had a complete shock because if you're playing for seven years to audiences of between 200 and 1,000 people and you suddenly stop, there's this kind of narcissistic crash that you have at the end because suddenly you feel as though nobody loves you anymore because nobody's clapping. And you, you have to sort of go into normal life and, and adjust. I mean, I don't know what it must be like for people who are mega famous when their careers go belly up. It must be absolute hell mentally because I found it difficult enough even at my level. But I kind of decided that I, I had completely run out of energy. I wasn't writing any songs anymore, nothing. And so I decided that what I would do would be to start giving back um, because so many people had helped me and believed in what I was doing um, and really encouraged me and encouraged my bands. So I started working on housing estates, doing um, songwriting workshops and training youth workers to use computer programming packages and putting on shows, writing songs for theatre group musicals. I did about three or four of those, actually, um, and just getting involved in much in a different type of making music. I did that for a few years and then saw a job being advertised at the University of Westminster where they wanted a, a musician um, who'd been in a band to come in and teach. And it was a new course that was just dedicated to pop music. And I applied for it and I didn't get it. <laughs> I was so furious that it was advertised again the next year and I applied and made damn sure I got it. And uh, so for, for about 20 years... I, I've been te I've been lecturing on in music courses at universities, and having to learn how to be a lecturer, which is really hard, was really hard. But then, about twelve years ago, thirteen years ago, um, I had this group of students, a year group of students whose music was so brilliant that I went out to see every single band on the course, and there was about sixty people. It's probably maybe about you know. 14, 15 bands or solo artists. So I, I just decided I was going to go and see everybody. And one of them um, was a guy called Jamie McDermott who had a band called The Irrepressibles who've done very well since then. And he just said to me, well, and I said to him, when, you know, I loved his band. And I said, oh, when are you playing again? Because I'd like to come and see you twice. And he said, oh, next week, bring your guitar and play some songs. <laughs> so I did. It was literally my second ever solo gig in my life. And I was trembling like a leaf. Um, and, you know, I had I had only got three songs. I didn't want to do any. I couldn't do any of the Helen and the Horn songs because they had gaps for um, horns and stuff. And I was also playing to students whose work I'd been marking, which is absolutely terrifying. <laughs> but um, he gave me another gig after that. And gradually I started, I, I think once I started writing songs again, I couldn't stop. And I've been like that for the last 10 years. And started to sort of build up a solo career um, 
I worked for a while with a musician called Martin Stevenson and then decided that I would go solo. So last year I did, I think it was 30 solo gigs and released a solo album. Um, I've done quite a lot this year and just released a vinyl single, which is a DIY. I did it myself. And it's, um, you know, it's a real thrill to, after all these years to do a vinyl single again and have that piece of vinyl in my hand. And it's a song that I've written. You know, it's getting some airplay on internet radio stations nothing on bbc six yet but they did um they did play um some stuff off my album last year so i'm living in hope with that one but um yeah i can't stop writing songs and that is the second part of my interview with helen McCookery book um yes i think we should break that here and then yes play some music and then come back to the interview this is a track by helen titled a good life with a bad apple i think you'll like it <laughs>
Try to lead a good life with a bad apple. Try to keep a shine, yes, I try to lead a good life with a bad apple. Cause I thought bad apple was mine. Try to lead a good life with a bad apple. Try to keep a shine, I try to lead a good life with a bad apple. I thought that apple was mine. Stunning stuff. That is Helen McCookery book with a track titled A Good Life with a Bad Apple. Hello, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter. Just go to at C86 Show. I will be there. And also, as I said earlier, and now I'm sounding a bit desperate, I know, but um, all the shows have been archived and you can find them on um, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean and Mixcloud. Check them out. It could just change your life. This is going to be, though, the third part of my interview with Helen, where I'd been talking about the creative process and she had mentioned that she'd had a break from writing music for quite a long time. And this was her response. Helen, take it away. You know, I got married and I had a family. And when they got, you know, when when my daughters got to teenage years, that's when I started again. And I, I never, ever, ever thought I would start again, not in a million years. I thought I, I was I thought I was a suburban housewife with a part time university job raising two kids. So it was a massive, a really massive shock to suddenly find, you know, never in a million years would I have thought that I would have been doing what I'm doing now. Really, really wouldn't have believed you if you'd said. And yeah, I meet all those people out. You know, I, I've actually taught with Pete Astor and I've done quite a few been on the same bill as Amelia Fletcher a few times it's quite funny because I think we've all got the same sense of disbelief that we're actually doing it you know and it's it's kind of you know you, you you find yourself with just as many things to say as you did when you were a teenager especially I mean like with me with 25 years of not writing any songs suddenly I've got 25 years worth of backup feelings to sort of express you know yes yeah. Well, and also the the thing that's you know, I, thirty years seems to be some a, a person of time, which is just enough for things to suddenly take on great meaning. Because I know this year there's been two books, two books on fanzines from the eighties. Now, I'm sure that up to about a year ago or two years ago, fanzines were like whatever. You know, they'd probably go in the recycling if people had sort of come across them. But suddenly that that kind of period of time. Everyone goes, no, no, we need to archive it now. And it's actually quite important. And actually, they're quite beautiful things. Don't put it in the recycling anymore, you know, you know, or put them on eBay at the very least. Suddenly, you know, they've all become very valuable. So it's interesting how how that kind of passing of time affects so many things from from being quite well that was a bit disposable to my god this is an amazing scene because obviously you know you and a lot of people on that sort of punk indie scene has just sort of appearing a lot on panels and radio and in and, and sort of film documentaries about sort of you know women in rock or punk as well or music so that must also feel you know, an enjoyable process that you, you're sort of now sort of elevated to those kind of um, stages, sitting behind the microphone, being asked all those questions. Well, it's very strange because, you know, we it was something that was being written about for a really long time and, and often often by guys from their perspective. And I think that's a lot of the reason why the, the women sort of get driven to talk about it is because we didn't really feel like our story had been told properly and um 
it would have been nice at the time if our story was as important as that of the, the guys. But it's, um, you know, I, I think possibly, you know, because Amelia was part of Riot Girl and the media was much more interested in that than they were in, in, in the sort of punk women. Although there was, you know, there was, there was a bit of writing on the punk women. But um, I think it's, um, it almost feels like it's something that we have to do for our own history, but also to inspire um, the young women that are making music now, because otherwise people tend to feel as though they are, they're just not kind of supported and it's a moment and it's going to go away. And I think that's rather than a sort of thing about kind of patting ourselves on the back, I think it's more of a, almost like a sense of duty. Like we kind of have to do it because at the time we weren't part of the mainstream. I mean, back then it was, you know, Sheena Easton and, you know, people, um, quite manufactured pop stars. And, um, and, and I think it's, it's almost like saying, well, actually we did actually, we did exist. And history is trying to sort of say we didn't, but we were there and we were writing music and we were carrying our gear around and we were traveling around in bands. And, you know, we went through the same, it, touring is pretty grueling. You know, sitting with a bunch of people for miles and miles and miles in a diesel van because diesel vans are very noisy and very dirty and you know it was always a second-hand van you bought from somewhere that broke down and that kind of thing and that's the same experience as a lot of guys has and it's just sort of saying well well we had that too and looking back at it um, from a perspective of being much older you can sort of see that there was some sense in it whereas at the time it felt completely chaotic you know and uh so it's quite that, the other nice thing about doing panels is having that opportunity to to reflect on what you did, and sort of think, well, maybe that's you know maybe those kinds of experiences are what has fed into what I'm doing now and my attitudes to everything now and my politics and the way that I get on with people and all that kind of thing. Yes. <clears throat> Because it's interesting. Because obviously I'm one of those people, um, you know, who's obsessed with their, you know pop rock documentaries and especially sometimes you know BBC4 on a Friday night seems to sort of have quite a few and I've noticed that there's like there's there's one on L7's come out and the Slits has come out as well recently you know crowdfunded kind of films about the band that they've sort of managed to locate the footage and though it probably wasn't that great a bit like that sort of footage from the first world war they sort of they realize there's a very good and interesting narrative to be told and a good story to be told and after years of sort of hearing the same old same on same old same old sort of punk stories with the whole Bill Grundy thing and Johnny Rotten Joe Strummer which you become one becomes quite bored with it's it's kind of become more fascinating with hearing other sides to to those kind of stories and I suppose I've always been much more interested in the indie world because it seemed to have less kind of heroes and sort of kind of bigger egos with kind of rock poses and and it had some you know from people like the Frank Chickens to you know we've got a fuzz box and we're going to use it and those kind of bands, because they, they, you know, like John Peel played all those kind of sounds that were quite different to what we would listen to on, you know, if we were listening to daytime radio one with Steve Wright in the afternoon and all that kind of jolly chap stuff. So it is an important part of knowing what else happened, because otherwise it does get kind of lost. And, and you realise that actually there isn't that many more decades for the stories to be told and to be kind of analysed or not so much analysed as just sort of recorded and it was kind of interesting I think it was last week there was a report that 
for the sales of guitars, there was more young women buying guitars or women than than men. So, you know, again, things have altered there quite drastically and it will continue to um, yeah evolve in that way. So obviously you've, you've had that sort of effect on, you know, the next generation. I think it's a lot of people, you know, uh, me, me and Gina have made this film Stories from the She-Punks and we, we basically went out and interviewed lots and lots of women who were in punk bands around that time, around the country, you know, a band called the Ets from Edinburgh, um, the Dolly Mixture from Norwich, from Cambridge, um, Lucy O'Brien, who's now a writer, but she was in a, a band called the Catholic Girls in Southampton. Liz Naylor from the Gay Animals in Manchester, plus lots of the um, lots of the London bands, and it's precisely that to sort of make sure that um, that it's 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 in history, and it was screened last night um, as a as a debut film, and one of the it had a there was a short beforehand that was on a girl girls rock school that's run by Kate Nash, and there were all those young women sort of playing playing rock instruments, probably the ones who bought them, you know, that, that report that you mentioned. And it was really heartening to see them all, you know, and actually I've met some of those those bands, those women out while I've been doing gigs. I'm like, oh, there's, you know, there's that person, there's that person. And it's quite, it's, it's a really thriving scene. Um, there's an organisation called Loud Women that promotes an awful lot of um, female-based bands and um, it's terrific to see it happening. It's fantastic. Yes. And obviously, you know, being the bassist, it's quite interesting because there has been quite a few. Was, yes, because my mind was just thinking, you know, I suppose we, well, I don't know about we, but I, I sort of grew up remembering sort of seeing, seeing Susie Quattro with her famous kind of outfit and bass. And also then people like Lou from um, the Red Guitars and also um, Tina from the from Talking Heads as well. So obviously... Yeah, you, you sort of were part of that kind of, um, I wouldn't say tribe, but definitely that sort of world of bass players in bands. I mean, obviously people could play other instruments, but I, I suppose it just came into my mind first that there was definitely some, you know, very iconic women who were there on stage doing their thing. Well, Tina Weymouth is, is absolutely great. And I remember doing sound checks and that bass line that she plays, that da, 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 you know, psycho, that's yes. that's easy to play and but it's a great bass line you know and I remember sort of playing that because I could play it you know and um she's very you know a really good bass player she's really minimal and and stuff but she just knew what she was doing and I think she's really under underrated actually as a bass player because probably because um David Byrne is so um charismatic and um tina weymouth went off and did tom tom club absolutely brilliant music you know and um really 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 good musician i think and uh yeah susie quattro very funny you know <laughs> sort of shouty and uh it was quite funny because um a, a while ago um i did a phd because I, I wanted to sort of study the women who'd been in bands and there wasn't really a book or anything so i sort of um, I did a PhD and went and interviewed lots and lots and lots of women. And um, it, it eventually came out as a book called The Lost Women of Rock Music in, in about 2012. And I was pitted against Susie Quattro on a Radio 4 programme. And I think we're supposed to be arguing because she, Susie Quattro is quite a Tory and I'm definitely not. 
And I just knew that she was, you know, she was saying, oh, well, you know, they weren't proper musicians and stuff like that. And I said, actually, what they were was entrepreneurs. <laughs> and she goes, oh, oh, yeah, I suppose you're right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> kind of, because it, it was real. I mean, it was so much to do with having an idea and following it through, you know, and that's why Horrible Thatcher was a genius because she invented that um, enterprise allowance scheme and turned everybody into entrepreneurs instead of independent-minded musicians, you know. It was a stroke of nasty genius on her part. But, um, no, I mean, it was a funny... That whole idea of having control over your own life and your own music and your own, you know, what you were doing with your, your bass playing or your drumming or your guitaring or whatever it was, that was really quite unusual because before then, it, everything had been a little bit under the control of guys, you know. Indeed, and that probably was a bit of a difficult problem. Anyway, that is the third part of my interview with Helen McCookery book. Um, I think we'll play a little bit more music and then the last part. But this is going to be a track titled At the Bathing Pond. Take it away. Natural feelings Synchronised by the trees The freshwater mermaids They drift on the breeze And they swim Under cloudy skies The pondweed Pulls at their feet Beside him, a 
confessing his lie. As he lifts the binoculars up to his eyes, he's watching at the bathing pond. At the bathing pond. Peeping Tom at the bathing pond. 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 Splash. Indeed. I was there. Prepared. Anyway, that was Helen McCookery book with a track titled At the Bathing Pond. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. And this is going to be the last part of my interview with Helen, where I've been talking about the five year narrative and also about that world of admin publishing and if she'd managed to navigate it well. And this was her reply. Helen, take it away. Well, the thing was, I'm, I work really hard. And when, when Helen and the Horns came off the road, I used to write soundtrack music for left-wing videos <laughs> and for um you know the occasional channel 4 television program um and so that used to give me enough money to make sure that even if the money wasn't coming in from the gigs to pay the band i could pay them from the fees that i got from those things i think the most extreme thing i did was it was such fun actually i i wrote some music for um a documentary on Millwall Football Club, um, which was broadcast by Channel 4 in 1991. I did that with Leicester Square, but my, what I actually did was go and record the chants and sample them and put them into the soundtrack. Um, and that was just enormous fun. So I had a really varied, uh, such a, a varied musical experiences. And I did have a lot of, you know, I, I know that I got completely done over by people like accountants and stuff like that I know that but if I spent a lot of time thinking about that I would be depressed for the rest of my life and I've had to just kind of take a view on that and say well look it is possible to completely let your experiences crush you and make you really bitter but the I wouldn't have wanted to have anybody else's life except mine you know that some some terrible things have happened in my life but I'm able to sort of wake up every morning and think oh it's a great day I'm going to pick up my guitar I'm going to play some you know write write some music and um you know that kind of overshadows the whole thing of people um doing sneaky things and letting letting me down letting my band down betraying and all that nasty. there's a lot of nastiness but musicians the rock industry it's very volatile it's full of people who um, are so ambitious they don't care about anybody else. It's full of people wanting to make money out of young people and they don't care how they do it. Um, it's full of people who want to make a lot of money out of people's copyrights and that kind of thing. And um, <coughs> in the end, I just had to think to myself, well, you know, it's brought me down once when, when I sort of, well, it brought me down a couple of times actually, but you have to kind of just decide. I'm the. I've got a creative spirit, and nothing's going to kill that, you know. And uh, so, it. You have to kind of just look at it and say, look at all these experiences I had. I not only have I survived them, but I'm also able to thrive and see, you know, good opportunities that come my way and stuff like that. Um, 
because otherwise you just get mired down in this awful bog of your your past sort of clasping at you and, and making you really miserable and that's not a good way to live live your life really no there was a fantastic quote by hunter s thompson about the sort of the murkiness of the music industry which i haven't received i can't remember it word for word but it's almost worth kind of finding because it's um, yes it's exactly that all about the stinky people that are destroying you but then you know it's all right okay because you're still hopefully making music so that's the kind of payoff so what would you I mean you've obviously got a phenomenal amount of experience and and been through so much what would you say to your I mean it's a bit, a bit tricky one the 18 year old self but you know the the kind of the bullet points that you think god that would have been a good thing to pass on to the next 18 year old if not my own 18 year old self back then back in those days well, I think one of the most important things is to keep learning, um, because if you keep learning, you start enjoying what you're learning and you become better at what you do. And I think one of the other things is to be able to adapt to change, because you can't, that there isn't a point in any creative industry where something that you've learned can be taken with you and applied to something else. It, there's no, you know, somebody once said to me, um, because I'd had I had two indie hits in the indie charts. I had one with Twenty Four Hours and one with Freight Train. So Twenty Four Hours was a chef's song, and Freight Train was Helen and the Horns. And this I couldn't get a deal. And this guy said to me, he was from Berserkly Records, and he said, "Oh well, it's probably because your songs aren't good enough." And I said, "Well, I've had you know I've had two indie hits." And he said, "Well, you've probably only written two songs." <laughs> so cheers, you know. I think you have to realise that <clears throat> things move really quickly and you always have to be you always have to be on your toes looking behind you as well as ahead. And that's quite difficult really because, you know, if you get a certain amount of success, you you sort I think probably a human being's natural instinct is to say, Oh, I, I've made it now, I've got that but you can't actually stop. You know, you have to keep moving, otherwise somebody moves along and topples you off your perch. Um, so you do have to be very um, quick-witted, and yeah. um, that's something which you learn. And um, you know, I think that's probably the most, the best piece of advice I would give to somebody: just really learn how to live by your wits. Yes, because it's quite interesting, sort of having been obsessed with, you know, David Bowie. From my my first love was David Bowie, you know, the first single and first album, and then sort of. And obviously one keeps with you know that first love and um, just realised how much he had to do, well, how much he kept doing and changing all the time. It's a bit like you were saying, it's, it's like you just have to keep somehow. I mean, people talk about reinventing and, you know, the chameleon, but I think it was just just having being creative but having to survive. I think there was a sort of a, a kind of two, two things going on at the same time almost, especially in his case of, of kind of thinking, right, I've done that, now I've got to try and move because if I stay in one place, I'm going to get shot down here, so I'll go over there. And, you know, a lot of things he did obviously didn't go brilliantly well from, you know, like some of the stuff in the 80s and even the 90s, but it, it did, you know, when he died, then he sort of started looking back more and, and looking at that narrative of his life, thinking, my God, he did sort of keep moving, you know, and that is... It's what you were just saying there, really. It's just that ability to, A, want to keep making music, but also to keep changing at the same time. Well, the funny thing is that <clears throat> changing is actually quite difficult because people kind of want you to stick because then they know 
what you are. So like record labels want you to stay the way you are. Your audience might want you to stay the way you are. But creative people don't do that. Changing is not difficult. It's getting people to expect, accept the fact that you're a changing being that's difficult, you know, that, you know, you're not going to just sort of stick the way that you are making exactly the same music for, for 30 years, that you're going to, you know, your, your life experiences are going to make your create, creative output change. And um, that's quite a difficult thing for people to manage, which I think David Bowie, he managed that really, really well, you know. Um, and I think it's... Uh, yeah, people, I was, I've always felt that people wanted to pin me down, you know, and I've always felt like I was a free spirit. And quite often I've, I've thrown away the chance of making money or, or fame or whatever, because um, my personal freedom to create is much more important than either of those things. And I've actually had people say, oh, do this, you'll get really famous if you do this, or do this, you'll make loads and loads of money. And I've just said, but that's not why I'm doing it. You know, it, it, the reason for doing it is the, the joy of creativity and being able to being able to explore things and feel like an adventurer, you know, um, which is not what everybody wants to have in their life. But I think a lot of the time creative people are a bit like those stupid people who climb Mount Everest and it's really risky. You know? it's, a bit, it's a bit like the sort of uh, mental equivalent of that, you know, like you, you, you get a buzz out of taking a risk and seeing what happens if you do something that everybody else thinks is really, really stupid. Oh, I wouldn't do that for a million years, you know, what are you doing that for? But you do it because you kind of have to, because it's actually in your blood, you know, or in yes. your skin or whatever. And I think that's probably... Most of the creative people I know are like that. And it was, in, and it was interesting because there was that quote with uh, Brian Eno, who you know, obviously worked with Bowie in the late 70s, saying, you know, just like take a chance. And, it, and his, he's just said, look, it doesn't matter. No one's going to die what we do. You know, no, we're not actually going to kill anybody doing this. So let's make low, which you know, obviously, you know, people were thinking, oh my, you know, the record company and, and the accountants must have been thinking, please don't make low. But, you know, and even, you know, the journalists like Charles Shah Murray sort of completely slammed it at the time but you know everyone looks back and now you know Lowe's their favorite album but it does take people like Bowie and Brian Eno and yourself to sort of just say well I'm just going to do this because that's what I want to do and I'm on the artist I'm not I'm not the person in you know the nine to five jobs being told what to do by their their lovely line manager yeah I mean at certain times I mean I found being signed up to RCA I found it a bit like I, I might as well be a meat pie in a meat pie factory you know and I think um it's it's that thing about you know nobody's going to die. Absolutely, I absolutely totally agree with that. I mean, whenever I whenever I'm about to do something risky, and if anybody sort of says to me, oh, do, you know, don't you know what you're doing that for? Don't do that. I think well, I, I don't work in the NHS. You know, it's not that kind of. I think you have to have a sense. I know this sounds really weird, but you have to have a sense of your own unimportance. Because if you think you're really, really important, you won't take risks and you won't change and you won't do anything that you think people might not like because you're so scared of what they might think um, that you, you know, and you, you want to retain your importance. Whereas if you think of yourself just as an atom, then that allows you to do anything because atoms, nobody's looking at what atoms are doing, you know, and you keep yourself, you keep yourself in that position of, of not being very important and that just gives you so much freedom to do what you want but, and if people notice what you're doing that's really great but if they don't that doesn't matter because you're going to do it anyway indeed good advice and that is the end 
and the last part of my interview with Helen McCookery book. A huge thank you to Helen for giving me the time for that interview. This has been David Esau. This has been the C86 show. And I'll leave you with another track from Helen's solo career. This is titled New York. Have a great week. New York, the trees so green, the sparrows fly in Central Park. All New York, the homeless and explorers wander after dark. They're searching for the souls in the busy traffic's floor. Dreaming in the rain and walking far too slow. start in life and a sense of being freed they're waiting for that feeling in the early morning glow oh new york don't take too long to let them know